The internet is a powerful tool that allows us to expand our knowledge at the click of a button. It's allowed genre film fans to track down movies from vague memories of scenes seen at pivotal times in our life and on top of that to be introduced to a catalogue of movies we did not know even existed. Pre-internet, if you sat around with a group of friends who had your shared interest in genre cinema and started a conversation about folk horror, that titles like Blood on Satan's Claw, The Witchfinder General and The Wicker Man would be front and foremost in the conversation. These movies define the subgenre, give it clarity, purpose and scores of filmmakers would begin to emulate these tomes created for the screen. Why is it that in 1970, during the time of movies like Witchfinder General, The Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw, does Cry of the Banshee, which ticks many of the boxes that the others have in terms of period setting, in terms of nods to the occult and paganism, and also to worship of other deities against and an affront to God. Why is it that Cry of the Banshee is not part of the conversation when discussing folk horror from that time period? Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish, and you're listening to Chronicle Podcast an almanac of old world horrors. Ignition, T-10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff. And welcome once again to Chronicle Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode Number 3, closing out Chapter 1 on our look at British folk horror cinema. The first three movies that I selected for our look at British folk horror cinema were strategically picked in such a way that I knew we could chart a through line from... Whistle and I'll Come To You, which has the aspects of the wilderness and being out of your own comfort zone in a place that you feel that you have legitimacy or better standing or knowledge and having that work come undone, through to the Witchfinder General, which has that idea of warped piousness and self-assurance destroyed at your very hands, believing that you have a right of will over other people and their beliefs. Witchfinder General is one of the big three, so to speak, of the genre, and certainly crafts uh, a niche in the market which would be later exploited by other films, thus legitimising the subgenre itself. But the movie that I chose as my third came at its back end, came at the 
beginning of a brand new decade and starred the main star of the previous movie. Vincent Price would do his best to work with not the greatest script and turn in a performance which at times feels a bit safe, a bit of a payday, a bit of paint by numbers price, but moments, little glimpses of delicious viciousness in his tone and manner. To a movie that feels almost like a relic of the previous decade and holding the keys to a new kingdom of cinema in the 70s. Let's put it this way, in an alternative universe where Witchfinder General doesn't exist, I think that Cry of the Banshee might have been the predominant movie to kick off the folk horror genre. It certainly got attention and eyes drawn to the screen and certainly laid out a blueprint of how to do Satan, Paganism and other sorts of perversions of spirituality on the screen in a way where movies like Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man would update mere years later and add a woozy post swinging 60s vibe, an almost psychosexual tinge that would make folk horror a genre that we still speak about with reverence and see movies emulate all the way up in 2020. That being said, we don't live in that alternate universe. Witchfinder General does exist and it is a massive weighty tome of ugly, overbearing, phenomenal cinema. And through that lens, we have to judge Cry of the Banshee slightly differently. And that's where we'll be going on this episode. I'd just like to, before we begin talking about the movie, thanks to everyone out there who's been checking out the Teapots Collective shows, Chronicle, Opera Omnia and Doing the Nasty. The feedback has been incredible and if you want to make sure that you never miss one of these episodes or one of the episodes of the two shows I just mentioned, then you need to subscribe to the Teapots Collective wherever you listen to your podcasts. Chronicle is set to take a break for the next month before returning with Chapter 2 of Season 3, our look at folk horror cinema. And we have some phenomenal titles coming up. In Chapter 2, we will be looking at two of the big three the Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, and a lesser known outing which is very much worthy of your time and consideration in Requiem for a Village. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's turn our attention back to 1970. It's the beginning of a decade which would change horror cinema forever. A decade that would give us movies like The Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween and Suspiria. Right at the beginning of this decade, 1970. A director who had just finished working with three of the most iconic horror actors of their day and Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price would release a little movie called Cry of the Banshee. You're listening to Chronicle Podcast. Stay with us 
H is for heretic. Margaret Donald, you were kitchen maid in the house of the widow Rockby, who was burned as a witch this seven days. Heathen charms were found in your room. No. Who gave them to you? I know nothing. Damn it, girl. The more I find to punish, the more I find to discover. Who else came to the house consorting with the witch? I know nothing of witchcraft. Very well. Do you still maintain that you know nothing? <laughs> According to the law, as a witch, you are to be whipped through the street until your back is bloody, and then to look on the world from the stocks. That and that mark may help you to remember. Court dismissed. In his 100th movie appearance and his last performance in a gothic horror movie, Vincent Price would turn in a performance as a magistrate, Judge Edward Whitman, who is feared and respected in a small Tudor village. He has a real passion for not only the prosecution, persecution, torture and death of witches, but the stature and position it affords him and the power he wields to not only sentence people to death, but the money he can make from it. Because point of fact, Judge Whitman might not necessarily believe that witches exist at all, but it's good for the family business. He is the patriarch of a very dysfunctional family, currently on his second wife who does not appear to enjoy the glee in which her new husband exudes at the hands of misery and torture. He's also the father to three kinda dysfunctional kids. A son whose distaste for his father's practices has seen him seek educational solace far away from the confines of his father's stately home. A daughter who is in love with the handyman and disapproves vehemently of her father's extracurricular activities. And finally, the youngest son who adores his father's position, his power and the opportunity that he has to rape the local girls, accuse them of witchcraft, and watch his father clean up the mess behind him. Judge Whitman inadvertently creates his own downfall in this movie, by not only persecuting who he believes unjustly, and in most times inaccurately, people of witchcraft. But when Judge Whitman's taste for power and justice 
see him trying to take down the head of a local coven, Una, she places a curse upon him and his house by calling up one of the she-folk and then members of the family of Judge Whitman start to die in terrifying circumstances. The Avenger in question is an aid to the Whitmans themselves. Roderick is a man with a mysterious past who has found a talent in not only calming the local animals, but also calming the judge's wife. When a new priest joins the Whitmans at their family home, he identifies Roderick as potentially able to channel witchcraft, mostly because of the weird amulet he appears to wear around his neck, which shows a kind of half-beast, half-man creature. After Una summons up a curse, Roderick becomes that vessel, slowly picking off the Whitmans one at a time. And as the audience, we can all admit it, they've been asking for it for quite some time. God of miracles and wonders, on this evil day, I curse Lord Edward Whitman. I curse his flesh, his blood, his wife, his children, and his house. God, Satan, I conjure you to send me an avenger so terrible that death shall wrench them once forever from this earth. I conjure you, Lord Satan, send me an avenger. Sean is the judge's youngest son and in this movie he rapes with impunity any local woman he wants then accuses them of witchcraft. In one particular disturbing scene in the movie he even rapes his new mother-in-law. The effect being that she is essentially a husk of a human afterwards on the verge of lunacy. Harry, the eldest son, who's returned from Cambridge to spend time at the family home, may be against his father's more brutish views on witchcraft. However, that does not stop him getting involved with the family business, and thus marking him for death as well. Maureen is Edward's only daughter, and she is in a secret relationship with Roderick, who constantly throughout the movie is trying to tell her to stay away and be safe. Sadly, she does not heed his advice and also meets a pretty vicious end. The movie culminates with Lord Edward believing that Maureen has killed Roderick and thus lifted the curse from the family. In a euphoric state, he believes that he can now move on from this place and start a new life and a new beginning. A single shot to the face is what dispatches Roderick from this world. Or does it? Earlier in the movie, we find that the engraving on a local grave says, 
To be born by fire, you must end by fire. At this revelation at the end of the movie, the Lord Judge opens the grave to find that Roderick's body isn't there, the remnants of his family now killed, and the Judge, Edward Whitman, carried away in a carriage, driven by a she. I shouldn't do that. But he's dead, it's me, open it or I'll bury you with him. didn't kill him. He's dead. His head was blasted from his body. Where is he? You didn't kill him. Born by fire, by fire must be consumed. He's dead. Where is he? You didn't kill him. Be on our way. Still alive. He isn't dead. You didn't kill him. Don't you understand? You didn't kill him. You didn't kill him. Harry. Bully boy! Bully boy! Bully boy! Bully boy! So why does Cry of the Banshee not hold the same reverence in the tomes of folk horror that movies of the day do? Why do we not consider it one of the pillars, one of the big three, when examining movies like Witchfinder General which came out two years before or subsequently Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man? If you watch this movie it's hard to differentiate between specific themes raised here as being altogether different or against the grain of the other movies of the time. Certainly, we're looking at witchcraft or satanic practice, or practice against that of the norm of the Christian people. We're looking at hubris. Someone's either cynical approach to superstition or someone's devout belief that in their hands only the just actions will be wrought. We have the idea of the mystery surrounding the local land, whether it be woodland, hills or caves. And let's look one step further. This movie ends with the crying out of the main character in pain and torture, misery and confusion. As the credits roll and the camera pans out, these cries are still heard with the music playing in the background. This would be almost identically 
replicated in The Wicker Man a couple of years later. In terms of the satanic rites and practices performed in this movie, it's almost a precursor to what you would see on the screen in Blood and Satan's Claw. And this movie was no slouch when it came to its success. It did relatively well at the time and didn't receive the marked condemnation that Witchfinder General would see upon its release. And you've got some big names in the involvement here, or names that would go on to do bigger things. One of the interesting aspects about watching this movie, even for the first time, is the title credits that appear right at the start. There's something fun, something playful about them, the way they're designed. And then you realise that Terry Gillingham was behind it. Now, in contrast, think about the Python work of this era, specifically those set in medieval times, and it's difficult to think that this didn't have an impact on Gillingham moving forward and the Python troupe. So what we're left with is pure reviewer conjecture. Why is it that Cry of the Banshee doesn't have the same acclaim? It could come down to the director. He wasn't exactly known for hard-hitting horror movies, but his name is well established. It could come down to the very time period in which it was released, at the beginning of a brand new decade, a decade waiting to find what would shock and move horror forward. It could be Vincent Price. If he was the selling point for Witchfinder General, as discussed in the previous episode, he could be the undoing of this movie. And it's safe to say that his performance leans back into the campier aspects that would define the later part of his career. It's also a kind of flawed movie. For its name, Cry of the Banshee, there is in fact no Banshee in this movie. The movie was marketed as a Edgar Allan Poe adaptation to link in with the Corman Poe releases, very much like Witchfinder General would be under the name The Conquering Worm. This has nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, and thus muddies the water further. But that's not to say that there isn't some real enjoyment to be had here revisiting a movie like this. John Coquillian's cinematography is absolutely phenomenal, taking in not only set pieces of original set design, but also that of the countryside itself. Costume design is great, and acting for the most part is strong throughout. It's the story that lets this movie down. It starts strong with the idea of the witch trials themselves with a corrupt and dubiously motivated judge. Torture, rape and suspicion are then cast throughout the movie. But there are long sections here where not a lot is going on and it takes till about the halfway mark and just beyond before we have the curse laid upon the family and then the she coming to collect the victims. The highest body count is really towards the end of the movie, and even then it's in the closing scenes. There's a subplot to do with a local rabid dog, which doesn't really feel fully fleshed out, and its conclusion and summation is unsatisfying to the viewer. So maybe it's unfocused. Maybe it has some slightly camp delivery. Maybe it's not entirely clear if the Banshee exists at all, as we never really see it on the screen, the vengeance wrought by a curse and a she. 
But it's hard to argue on this particular podcast that Cry of the Banshee is not worthy of discussion and time when it comes to any matters of late 60s and early 70s folk horror. It certainly ticks all the boxes, whilst not being a perfect movie at all. It's like a slightly lighter Witchfinder General. And if you find that movie too disturbing, then Cry of the Banshee might be the movie just for you. The internet is a wonderful tool. It's knowledge at the touch of your fingertips. It allows you to not only rediscover things that you thought you could remember at the blink of an eye, but at the same time introduces you to a brand new world of discussion and thought. Let's hope, moving forward, movies like Cry of the Banshee are brought to the forefront of discussion, ready for reappraisal by eager eyes and hungry minds. And you've been listening to Chronicle Podcast. This has been episode number three of season three. This is closing out our first chapter look at folk horror in British cinema. We have carried the torch through three early outings which are, in my opinion, a great foundation when exploring the genre. On episode one, we looked at Whistle and I'll Come to You, this great little ghost story set out by the sea. In episode two, The Witchfinder General, one of the mighty three, certainly up there amongst some of the great and most horrific cinema of the time. Hugely influential. And closing out this chapter with the lesser known and lesser discussed Cry of the Banshee. Moving forward, in a month's time, we will start chapter two. Another three movies to review. Those three movies are amongst the greats of this subgenre. We will be looking at The Wicker Man. Blood on Satan's Claw, and a lesser scene but worthy of your appraisal and slightly ahead of its time, Requiem for a Village. I look forward to discussing those movies and I hope that you'll join me. Before we get to that, as always, make sure that you are subscribed to the Teapots Collective on whichever podcast device you're using. That way you will never miss an episode of Chronicle when it drops. You'll also have access to, every single Friday, a brand new episode released on that feed. Whether it's Doing the Nasty, the Video Nasty podcast, currently looking at the tier 3 videos, two movies every month, or Opera Omnia, which exclusively looks at a director's filmography, and this season currently looking at Ben Wheatley and covering Kill List in the previous episode and moving forward to Sightseers coming up next month. You will never miss any of these episodes if you're subscribed to the feed. And while you're at it, why not check out my main show, Podcast Under The Stairs, which can be found by typing Podcast Under The Stairs into any podcatcher. You can continue conversations on what we are discussing on Chronicle over on Facebook and our group page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Chronicle Podcast. Join me in a month's time when we begin Chapter 2 of Season 3 by turning our attention to blood on Satan's claw. And remember, a lot of people don't believe in curses. A lot of people don't believe in yellow spotted lizards either. But if one bites you, it doesn't make a difference whether you believe in it 
or not. This is Duncan McLeish from Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Until the next time. Ignition. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Lift off.